This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome to the first ever episode of your podcast, Into England's Past. I'm your host, Charles Rowe. Coming up on the programme, we look ahead to the 200th birthdays of Queen Victoria and Prince Albert on the Isle of Wight. We have used the Queen's journal entries as a major source for the birthday exhibition in terms of telling us, you know, what the Queen did and how these birthdays were celebrated. So, yeah, that's really useful. We also hear how a new exhibition at their former home, Osborne, will be presented. There will also be some of the actual gifts on display in the exhibition area. We're going to recreate the garlands on the walls and so on. So, yeah, we'll have a a lovely look to it, I think. And we'll discover how the Queen remained dignified while bathing on her private beach. But before all that, let's show you what's coming up soon on future episodes of the English Heritage Podcast. And what happens with the agreement of the Synod is that the entire church in England and ultimately in Britain aligns itself with mainstream continental practice. Most human societies have monsters in their stories that look like giant snakes or lizards or crocodiles, but Europe is unique in having a flying, fire-breathing, scaly monster. 1539 to 40, Henry VIII is really worried about the prospect of an invasion by the French or the Spanish, that he starts to build artillery forts like this one all around the east and south coasts. All that to come very soon. Make sure you subscribe to stay up to date. Now, 2019 will see English Heritage honouring a number of anniversaries. Perhaps one of the biggest is the 200th anniversary of the birth of both Queen Victoria and Prince Albert, which is being celebrated at Osborne, their former holiday home on the Isle of Wight. Before the current Queen, Queen Victoria was England's longest reigning monarch. She came to the throne at 18 and stayed there for almost 64 years. And in fact, Victoria used her channel retreat for over 50 of those. Joining me to talk about her much-loved home is curator of Osborne, Michael Hunter. Michael, thanks for speaking with us. Good to talk to you. Thanks for joining us. Now, before we find out more about the bicentenary celebrations you've got planned at Osborne, could you describe where it is? It's a spectacular site, really. We're on the northern tip of the Isle of Wight, which, as you know, is that sort of triangular uh, bit of land in the middle of the Solent opposite Portsmouth and Southampton. And it has the most spectacular views over the Solent. And it has a real Mediterranean feel to it. When Albert and Victoria came here first, this very much appealed to them. They wanted somewhere private. And so the Osborne estate, with its privacy, but nevertheless close proximity to London with the advent of the railways and so on at that time. It meant that they could come down here fairly easily from London in about three hours. I mean, the architecture is very Italian, which befits its wonderful setting. It's said that Prince Albert thought that the view from the house was like the Bay of Naples, And for sure, on a wonderful summer's day here at Osborne, you do get that very kind of subtropical feeling. I have to say, Michael, uh, looking at some of the pictures, one would be forgiven for thinking it was in Italy and not so much in the British Isles. Yes, that is true. And Albert had recently visited Italy and, uh, you know, shortly after coming to Osborne, I mean, he was still intoxicated with Italian art and architecture. And the setting here really merited uh, an Italian palazzo. 
One of the things, of course, that struck me um, about Osborne is that it's fallen out of use as a royal residence. Obviously, it's now in the hands of English heritage. And But how does English heritage come across getting hold of a, a former royal residence? When Queen Victoria died here at Osborne in 1901, the new king, her son Edward VII, didn't really want Osborne. He didn't need it. If he had kept it on, he would only have used it as an occasional residence. He had Sandringham House as his country residence, and so he didn't really need or want the upkeep of Osborne. And so one of the first things he did when he became king uh, was to give Osborne to the nation. Very kind of him. With a number of... (laughs) (laughs) Yes, wasn't it? Uh, Very very, uh, magnanimous and public-spirited of him. Um, But he was very keen that Osborne should be preserved in perpetuity as a memorial to Queen Victoria. And the house opened, actually, to visitors in 1904. So, you know, very quickly after Queen Victoria died, visitors were allowed in. Only certain rooms on the ground floor, it has to be said. And then a large part of the house was turned into a convalescent home for officers. The Boer War was going on and officers needed convalescent space. And so the king was very keen to use Osborne for for that purpose. And also a large part of the grounds here at Osborne was turned into the Royal Naval College Osborne, which at that time was used for the training of naval cadets. Now, going back to Osborne itself and its important residence, how often would Victoria and Albert come to Osborne? I understand it was purpose-built as a holiday home. They had, they had bought the land and demolished an original building. Is that right? There was an 18th century house here on the site when Victoria and Albert first came here to Osborne. They lived in it for a couple of seasons, but it was just too small, really, and so they knocked it down and rebuilt the house that we all see today. It was one of their favourite places to be. They were either here on the Isle of Wight or up in Scotland at Balmoral. They were here for about two to three months in total of every year. That's quite a long time. So was it mostly a summer retreat? It was to start with, yes, up until Albert's death in 1861. And then, of course, the whole calendar of Queen Victoria's visits, her whole life changed dramatically after that sad event. Osborne was then used more in the winter, although the Queen did also come in the summer, um, after 1861, Queen Victoria always spent her Christmases here. They had always spent Christmases together at Windsor, so um, this was a, a change. But yes, I mean, Osborne was a retreat, it's true, but nevertheless, of course, the monarch never has time off. <laughs> and so the building of Osborne not only supplied the royal family with a private retreat, a private wing, where they could enjoy a degree of downtime, but a larger part of the house was dedicated to the accompanying court. And so the ladies-in-waiting, the private secretaries, these sorts of people also came over to Osborne with the Queen. And so when Victoria was here at Osborne, she would receive her prime ministers, her other government ministers. She would conduct investitures here. So these sorts of things that one thinks as being more located in the official London sort of residences and at Windsor Castle also happened here at Osborne. So, you know, one, one has to bear that dual aspect of the house in mind, which is quite an interesting sort of balance, I think. So would she have had guest rooms for major heads of state who had come to stay at Osborne? <laughs> 
Yes, that's an interesting one. Um, yes, is the short answer to your question, but uh, Queen Victoria wasn't really all that happy in having too many people staying in the main house. She always complained that, you know, oh, dear Osborne, you know, there isn't a lot of room here for me to put people up. So, yes, she did have rooms in the house that she used as guest rooms, but, you know, they were quite small and very domestic in scale. But there were cottages around the estate, dotted around the estate, where she was able to put people. So they were on the estate at Osborne, but not in the main house, if you, if you know what I mean. I want to talk to you a little bit about how it compares with other royal residences of today. What's involved in maintaining a property that kind of size? And I gather you do have some figures dating back to 1861. It's the only year the census was taken when the Queen was here at Osborne, and there were approximately 100 people working in the house um, to support the, the Queen and the running of the house and the court and so on. We don't have that many now, <laughs> but still we do have a, a considerable staff here because we're one of English Heritage's most visited properties, something like 350,000 visitors a year. Let's look at some of the highlights as uh, visitors arrive then. Uh, which rooms would you say really mark important chapters in the lives of Victoria and Albert? Uh, do they tell a story about their lives, some, some rooms? Oh, yes, for sure. I mean, I always think the royal nurseries here at Osborne tell the, <laughs> their domestic story very vividly uh, because the night nursery is, well, I always think of it as a baby factory. Um, she Queen had nine children, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> they were spread out, I have to say, over a period of 17 years. In the nursery, there are a, a sort of lineup of cots and cradles and beds and so on, where the children would have, the very young children would have slept. And then, of course, all the many, many grandchildren and great grandchildren who visited Queen Victoria later in her life would also have used these rooms. So I think they're very telling uh, of the sort of domestic family vibe of Osborne. But then, of course, we have some of the other rooms, the Queen's sitting room, for instance, on the first floor of the pavilion, which is where Queen Victoria and Prince Albert had their own private rooms. I think it's extraordinary standing in that, I mean, you know, large sitting room, but in terms of royal life, quite intimate. Um, and there in the middle of this room are the two writing tables on which Queen Victoria and Prince Albert would have worked daily here at Osborne on their papers and so on, side by side. And I just think, wow, nothing much really has changed since Queen Victoria and Prince Albert's day. And here in this room, um, particularly in the later part of the Queen's reign, you know, here she was in, in Osborne on the Isle of Wight, controlling this sort of vast Victorian empire, <laughs> the likes of which had never been seen before. I just think that is really quite astonishing. I understand as well, Michael, we have um, a room which is an Indian room, but is it called the Indian room? And when was that built? Ah, yes. Now, th this room is called the Darbar room, meaning a grand sort of reception or the room in which these receptions take place. It was built very much as a late addition to the house in the 1890s to provide Queen Victoria with a large indoor reception and dining space. And it's, of course, decorated in this incredibly lavish Indian style. You know, stepping into that room, it's almost as if one has gone, one has been transported to India and one is standing in the middle of a Maharaja's palace. It's incredible interior. But of course, Queen Victoria became Empress of India in the 1870s and this room very much 
designed and built to reflect her status as empress. There are also um, parts to the grounds which uh, we haven't covered yet. There's a beach. The whole point of Osborne, really, and its major kind of attraction to Victoria and Albert was the fact that it was, it had its own private shoreline. And so this made travelling to the island in Osborne easier for them because they would come down from London or Windsor by their own train to Gosport um, near Portsmouth, get on one of their own private yachts and then sail over the short distance uh, across the Solent to Osborne. So that was really part of its attraction and, and also for recreational purposes. Well, I was going to ask about the... Queen Victoria's recreation in the sea, how would she have bathed on her private beach? Well, she had a, a bathing machine, as they were called, and this is essentially a wooden hut on wheels, a changing room on wheels, and so the Queen would change into her bathing costume in this hut, and then it would be winched down on these huge wooden wheels into the water, and then the Queen would be able to come out of the hut, down the steps, into the water. So, yeah, she wasn't really, you know, her modesty was being protected. She wasn't being, um, you know, although the beach was private, you know, she wasn't on open view, as it were. And talking about bathing, Prince Albert designed this huge floating swimming pool, if you like, in which the royal children were taught how to swim members of the crew from the Royal Yacht were on hand to help and teach the children to swim. So they may have been involved in getting the bathing machine into the water and back out of it again. They sound almost like perfect contraptions of the Victorian era. It was an era of constant invention. Yeah, I think that sums it up really well, yeah. And I mean, Prince Albert was very interested in new technology and always inventing and thinking about things and very hands-on and involved with his children's upbringing and so on. So, yeah, unfortunately, the bath doesn't survive, although we do have a little wooden model of it that is probably a construction model that Albert may have had something to do with the design and making of, which would be given to the boat builders, the local boat builders, to, to, to make. Of course, Victoria and Albert uh, would have loved to have um, enjoyed the summer there and uh, do all their bathing and teaching the children swimming, especially in May and August when both had their birthdays. Uh, Victoria, of course, was born in May and Albert in August 1819. How did Victoria spend her birthdays at Osborne? Was Albert also part of that tradition? Yeah, they always made sure that they were here at Osborne for their birthdays. These were very special anniversaries, very special times for, for the royal couple. There was a, a great sort of frenzy of gift-giving. There was a room set aside here, which was the birthday table room. Rather than wrapping gifts as we do today, the, the gifts weren't wrapped. They were set out in this room on tables, or if it was a picture, it would be hanging on the wall. And then the whole room would be decorated with these lavish floral arrangements, great swags of flowers on the walls, and the Queen's um, initials done in flowers and pot plants everywhere. Uh, so they were really sort of big kind of, um, you know, staged production numbers, if you like. Would they have bought each other several gifts for a birthday, or would it just be one? Oh, several gifts. I mean, I'm not sure of the exact number, but yeah, there would be several, you know, sculptures, paintings, jewellery. Yeah, it wasn't just the one gift. 
the way that the collection here at Osborne was built up was very much a joint undertaking. You know, they, they did everything together and, you know, buying and displaying their collections here was very much a part of that. And after Albert died in 1861, the impetus out of, the, went, kind of went out of the Queen's acquisition of objects, if you like, although she still did collect and acquire things. Yes, obviously, after Albert died of typhoid fever, she fell into an, an enormous depression, didn't she? And um, began wearing black all the time. How would birthdays have been after that point? How would she have marked Albert's birthday, even after his death? They were much more subdued, quieter affairs. I mean, the Queen, for instance, for her birthday, she avoided Osborne and preferred to be at Balmoral. You know, here at Osborne, the whole family were involved in the birthdays. <laughs> you know, Victoria and Albert were wakened up first thing in the morning by a brass band playing under their windows. <laughs> Usually music composed by Albert. <laughs> <laughs> he was just too clever for his own good, really. Then the whole family would put together entertainments. The children would perform for their parents um, just before or after lunch. There would be little dances where the children would take part. You know, so it, it was very much a happy, jolly well, family affair, really. But later on, after 1861, they, they were quieter and more subdued. Yeah. Let's talk a bit more about your plans to tie in with their birthdays. English Heritage, as we know, is marking 200 years since their births. I understand we can actually see the gifts that they would have given to each other over the years. So how will they be on display? Well, we've got a, an introductory exhibition which will tell the story of Queen Victoria and Prince Albert's birthdays here. And this will be a great celebration. It will look very celebratory. There will be lots of flowers around. Not going to say any more at this point. <laughs> So that's what yeah, that one's exhibition. that one's under wraps, is it? The the, the floral arrangements. <laughs> well, I, I'm only I'm only I'm only teasing you, really. But, but um, you know, the fact that flowers were such a big part of how these birthday tables and gifts were displayed, huge floral backgrounds to these gifts. Uh, that's kind of what we want to get at in the exhibition. Uh, we want it to have a bright, colourful, celebratory floral feel. And there will also be some of the actual gifts that survive here at Osborne um, on display in the exhibition area. And then visitors will be able to pick up a trail into the gardens and the grounds where they will be able to see a selection of birthday gifts which survive here on, on display at Osborne. What sort of undertaking is it for you to do this bicentenary celebration? Um, well, obviously, it, it takes planning, it takes, uh, you know, a team of people. We have historians, um, conservators who will look after how we display the objects and so on. Uh, we have to do research, uh, finding out what these objects are, who made them. It is a team effort, but, you know, a really enjoyable one and a very welcome one to just kind of provide visitors with a, a, a different way in to the collection. You know, it may not be generally known that Queen Victoria and Prince Albert spent their birthdays here and had these amazing displays of gifts. And finally, if people are planning a trip to the Isle of Wight and to visit Osborne, what would you say is a really quirky highlight that they should look out for when they're either in the grounds or in the house? One of the really quirky things here uh, at Osborne, I suppose, in a way, thinking about when it was built particularly, was Queen Victoria's lift. 
I mean, this was built in the 1890s just to give access from the ground floor to the Queen's rooms on the first floor. Of course, at that stage, I mean, the Queen was probably in her 60s, and so she obviously wanted the convenience of a lift, and so this was installed. And it's not an electric lift, it's a manually operated lift. And so there are ropes that go from the lift into the basement, and so a servant would have had the rather nerve-wracking job of lifting the Queen up in this contraption to her rooms on the first floor. So that's, that's an, an, un, an unexpected thing that one can stumble across at Osborne, I think. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. If you're interested in seeing Osborne for yourself, you can find opening times on the English Heritage website. We're back next week for our next step into England's story. In the meantime, you can follow us on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and see you next time. Music